Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Great God, we pray now that you would send your spirit and fill our hearts and our minds with your truth. Help us to perceive and to understand the truths of your words today. Pray that you would speak through me well, that I would speak clearly and articulate the truths of these scriptures that you've given us. We pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. I'm intern pastor Jim Fredier, for those who don't know me, and uh, it's a great Sunday to be here. Every Sunday is a great Sunday to be here, but in particular, this Sunday is a great Sunday because we're kicking off a new sermon series for the fall on the book of Psalms. We're going to spend the next 10 to 11 weeks here, um, other than a few guest speakers that will have come. And we're going to look at these psalms and, and uh, just think through them more deeply. I think for the history of the church, these psalms have been a source of encouragement, a source of strength, a, 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 just a source where God's people have come to for thousands of years, um, going back even before uh, the New Testament times that the, uh, uh, the Israelites also came to these psalms. Uh, and saw them as an opportunity and a place to be part of their worship, where they would sing them uh, and they would pray them in a sanctuary much like this. When I was thinking through where to go with these psalms and sort of a title, a big overarching picture for me, I was thinking that these psalms are, uh, over the next 10 weeks, is really the psalms of life. And the reason for that is because these psalms give us a picture of what it means to be human and to live in a fallen world. They remind us of the majesty and the beauty of God while showing us the depravity of our own hearts and the evils of this world. You know, John Calvin said this about the Psalms. I have been accustomed to call this book, I think not inappropriately, an anatomy of all the parts of the soul. For there is not an emotion of which anyone can be conscious that is not here represented as in a mirror. The book of Psalms speak to our hearts. It shows us the full range of human emotions, of people in distress, people praising, people repenting, uh, pre people calling out to God in need of help. The book of Psalms is really a collection of 150 Hebrew songs, or um, uh, po of so either songs or just poetry, uh, that are the most commentators would say are in five different books. So we're going to spend most of our time over these next 10 weeks in book one, but we're going to touch on psalms from all five books of 
the, the entire book of Psalms. The Psalms themselves were written over a period of about 600 years, um, starting with King David, uh, about 1,000 B.C., going up until the period of exile, the return from exile, when the Israelites came back from Babylon. So they, the last psalm, most commentators think, ended uh, about 400 B.C. Now, of course, these psalms were written by many different authors, and if you've ever taken the time to read through some of these psalms, you'll know the vast majority of them list David, King David, as the author. But there are other psalms that list Moses as an author, the Asaph, as well as the sons of Korah. And of course, there are all kinds of different psalms, right? There's psalms of lament. There's psalms of praise. There are royal psalms and temple psalms. All that, and that's just a few. If you go to a commentary and you look, um, there's a full range of how people look at these psalms and, and, and classify them. And within that classification, these psalms, again, are talking about our worship. They're talking about praise, giving thanksgiving to God. They're, they're calling us and showing us how to repent um, and to confess our sins. And we're going to look at, again, many of those psalms today. Some of them that you know well, some of them that maybe you've never read or, or taken much time to think through. Now, many scholars consider Psalms 1 and 2 sort of to be an introduction, sort of the pillars, the gateway to the entire book of Psalms. And even though the style of these Psalms, these two Psalms differ, there's a lot of literary overlap and link between them. Some of these links include the fact that they are both untitled Psalms. They both overlap in language and imagery. For example, the blessed man of Psalm 1 is fulfilled in the Messiah King of Psalm 2. While the wicked scoffers in Psalm 1 are the foolish rebels in Psalm 2. Why do I tell you all that? Because about a year, year and a half ago, I preached on Psalm 1. So that's why we're not starting with Psalm 1 today. I preached on Psalm 1 about a year ago, and I thought, no reason to redo that. Let's, to, let's do something new. But also, Psalm 2 is one of my favorite psalms, one of the psalms that I've got, come to year after year after year for the past 30 years of being a Christian that God has really used and spoken to me in my life. You know, if someone were to ask you today and to tell them in a very succinct way to give you the history of the United States, how would you do that? What might you include in telling somebody about the history of the U.S.? You know, you might start by looking at our nation's ascent to global power. You might take a perspective of looking at it from our, our political perspective or even from a geographical perspective. But could you do the same thing with the Bible? If someone asked you to unfold the story of God's people, could you, could you do that? Or, un, or unfold the story of redemption? Are you able to do that? Probably most of us could not, or maybe some of us could in different ways. And there are a lot of different ways to do that. We could take a redemptive historical approach when we look at Scripture, focusing on the various covenants God has made with Adam, with Noah, Abraham, Moses, David on into the New Testament, right? Or we could, we could even look at it from a much bigger perspective, from creation, fall, redemption, preservation, all the way into glorification. All these are legitimate ways to look at Scripture. But I would suggest we could approach it from the perspective of God's promise to deliver His people. From the fall onward, Scripture lays out a picture of our need for a Savior, we're told in Genesis 3, right after Adam and Eve sinned, that the seed of the woman, that is the Messiah, would crush the head of the serpent. We're told that the Messiah will come from the tribe of Abraham. 
that he will be from the, uh, I'm sorry, he will come from the descendants of Abraham and he will be from the tribe of Judah. He will be a prophet greater than Moses. And then in 2 Samuel chapter 7, in Isaiah 9, we, get, we are told that the Messiah will be the son of David and the son of God, whose kingship and kingdom will not end. You know, we could continue, of course, to flesh this out even more from the Psalms and the prophets, again, leading us all the way into the New Testament, where the New Testament clearly declares Jesus as the anointed of God, the Messiah of God. Now, against this backdrop, Psalm 2 gives us a picture in its historical setting of the coronation of a Davidic king, but also celebrates the glory and greatness of the Messiah king. Psalm 2 is the first of what's called the royal psalms, and it gives us a poetic expression of God's sovereignty and power over the nations as the high king who has appointed his anointed to rule over the nations. Keep in mind that the Hebrew word in the first couple chapters here of the anointed is a Hebrew word that means Messiah, Mashiach, right? It's used often to describe the kings of God. The, the Davidic kings um, are often called God's anointed, the Messiah. That's one way that could be translated. It's not this way because it can get confusing for us who are used to only hearing that word translated as Messiah. But anointed has that meaning behind it as, as not just being anointed by God, but being God's Messiah. Psalm 2 is divided into four stanzas of three verses each. You may have noticed that in the reading, with the main idea of the psalm being found in verse 7. And that's because the vast majority of psalms, not all of them, but the vast majority of psalms are like this, like an hourglass coming from the top down to the middle and then back out, right? And that is the vast majority of psalms. When you're looking for what's the main idea of the psalm is often found in the middle of the psalm, not at the beginning, not at the end, but in the middle. Psalm 2 opens with a rhetorical question. Why do the nations conspire or rage and the people's plot in vain? The psalmist who the New Testament tells us is David is asking, why why are the nations of the world so opposed to God and his anointed? David presents us with imagery of humanity plotting to overthrow God. They are in open rebellion against the rule of God and his anointed. The picture here is of a raging tempest, just great commotion against the Lord. Now, Charles Spurgeon, as the uh, great 19th century Baptist pastor, stated that we have in these first three verses a description of the hatred of human nature against God. They want to throw off God. So in verses 2 and 3, King David shows us that it's not just the masses who are rebelling against God and his rule. But kings and rulers join together, join together with the masses to confront their enemy. In essence, they are shaking their fists in God's face as they plot to burst their bonds and break away from their chains. The Hebrew idea that's being suggested here with these bonds and these chains is the yoke that's placed on the neck of a beast of burden. This is how the defiant kings view the authority of the Lord in their lives. They want nothing to do with his authority. They want to throw it off and run after their own delights and their own desires. Now, Daniel Ken, who's a pastor, says that God's authority is not just rejected here. It's thrown off. It's cast off. And they declare, these people declare their freedom from the Lord, and they are proud of it. That is what they want. That is what they desire. They want nothing to do with the high king of heaven. Look, church, it's easy to see these unbelievers in this text and not really identify with them, 
right? We, we want to go back to Psalm 1, and we want to be the, the righteous man. Uh, we don't want to be the unrighteous. But if we're true to ourselves, first of all, all of us, at one time or another, were classified as those in rebellion against God. The New Testament is very clear about that. We all, at one time or another, before coming to faith, were in rebellion against the Lord Jesus Christ, against the High King of Heaven. Apart from faith, we lived in rebellion to our King. And even coming to faith, if we're honest with ourselves, even coming to faith, we rebel against King Jesus. Look, I understand we want Jesus as our Savior. We like to talk about what He's done for us, the fact that he's forgiven us, that he saved us, that he's given us eternal life. We love this aspect of our glorious, generous king. But many of us bristle at submitting to our king in his ways. And this bristling, I think, on one level seems to be part of our sinful human nature. Just it's sort of innate within us to buck up against or to buck against authority, those in power over us. We often despise, if you think about it for yourself, Maybe you're different than me, but I often despise sometimes. Uh, now, I don't have a boss here, so I'm not talking about anybody here, so let me make that clear. Um, but uh, when I was working as a nurse or in other places, I would often despise having my boss or leadership tell me what to do. All right? We even get prickly, if we're honest with ourselves, we even get prickly with our spouses or our boyfriends or even our parents when it comes to them telling us that we should do this or we shouldn't do that. We get angry, and we often downright refuse to submit ourselves to authority, particularly if we disagree with that authority. You know, and I understand, we have all kinds of reasons. We could tell me, you could probably tell me 10 reasons why you shouldn't do what you were asked to do by your, the person in authority over you. And I understand that. I'm not trying to justify one or the other. I'm simply trying to point out that our hearts are often in open rebellion against his people in authority over us. And that includes King Jesus himself. You know, we have all, but, but the real problem for us, let me say this, the real problem for us, I think at least the way I understand it, is that we want the right basically to determine our own destiny, our own life. We don't want someone telling us how to live or what to do. One pastor has said it like this in the story. He said, our age is like being a new deckhand on a boat setting sail across the Pacific Ocean. During the night, you begin to notice the boat is traveling in chaotic pattern, circling and getting nowhere. As you look at the stars, you know you are heading in the wrong direction. So you approach the captain. Why are we heading this way? Don't you have GPS? Don't you see the stars? Never fear, the captain says. On this vessel, we don't navigate by the stars or even by satellites. Instead, we hang a lantern on the bow of the boat and follow its light. This is precisely what it is like to follow your heart, to live after your truth, or to be true to yourself. In essence, we are saying that to, my truth is better than Jesus' truth. My ways are better than God's ways. And that's what these first three verses are telling us. These people are rising up against God and his authority, against his anointed, because they do not wonder, want to live under his authority, under his ways, under his law, under his spiritual laws, uh, under his ethic. They want their own ethic. They want their own way. And they're going to throw off God in his ways. Look, if what you believe requires little change of lifestyle or permits you, permits you to do whatever you want, 
then you've not really understood the gospel of grace. Jesus comes and provides for us rails, right? Sometimes we look at the law, we look at Jesus' teaching, and we think, I'll keep this, I'll toss that out. But no, as King Jesus is coming to provide truth in the way for us to walk. Like Psalm 1, uh, we want to walk on the, the path, the narrow path, on the straight path. That's what Jesus' words, that's what the Word of God is for, to help guide our paths as we follow our King. Not for us to set it aside and to set our own truth up as the manner and way we should live. We are, as children of God, to live under the authority of King Jesus in His ways, in His Word. You know, the opening lines of this psalm show us a humanity at odds with their Creator. And then the, the, what follows is God's response to their open rebellion. So beginning with verse 4, we move from the scheming of these rebels to God's response, who looks at them with derision and scoffs and laughs at their rebellion. This imagery shows us that the views of the unrighteous don't really impact the high king of heaven. God had no reason to fear their attempts to overthrow him and his anointed one, because he's the Lord of heaven and earth, and all power comes from him, and is through him. Not only does he laugh at their vain attempts, but in his fury, the text says, he installs his king on Zion, that is in Jerusalem. So no amount of conspiring by these people will prevent God from appointing his anointed as his king. Look, church, this psalm is simply reaffirming what God had already told David in 2 Samuel 7. In 2 Samuel 7, uh, chapter 7, sorry, yeah, 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 through 14, God said to David, I will raise up after you your descendant who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son." The psalmist tells us that this is set in stone and it's not going to be changed regardless of this open rebellion against them because they have no real authority. All real authority rests with the king. So what's the decree here that is spoken of? It says, you are my son and today I have begotten you. And this psalm uses basically familial language for the king. The psalmist seems to have in mind a coronation ceremony for one of Israel's kings, right? Maybe, probably David, maybe Solomon. But look carefully at the statements God makes to his anointed. He says, I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. The son's dominion will be worldwide and he will reign over even those who refuse to kneel before him. The words in verses 8 and 9 go far beyond anything King David ever experienced or enjoyed, let alone any of his descendants. No Israelite king ever lived up to this promise or the ideal of this psalm. In the history of Israel, this psalm eventually became a psalm of hope. For the people of Israel, after their exile, they came back to this psalm, and just like we see in the New Testament, they're longing for, they're looking for the anointed, they're wanting the Messiah that Psalm 2 promises, but that they never received in their kings. The fulfillment of the promises made to, uh, Sam, or to David by Samuel and here in Psalm 2 never materialized in the history of Israel. Verses 8 and 9 may have been 
I always get this word wrong, hyperbole. There we go. <laughs> I'll stop for one second. But it may have been hyperbole in its modern context, right? Often the ancient Near Eastern kings spoke of their greatness in terminology and language that really wasn't true. It was exaggeration. Um, and that may be what's going on here. But here's the thing. In the New Testament, the New Testament sees a literal fulfillment of this when the apostles, when Paul when the writer of Hebrews, uh, John and Revelations, they pick up and they look back to Psalm 2 and they see in Psalm 2 that Jesus is the greater David. That Jesus is the fulfillment of what Psalm 2 promises here. A ruler for the nations, the rule all of God's kingdom, all of God's world. But here's the thing, brothers and sisters, that King Jesus came, right? We know in his first coming, we can look around. Not everything is under the rule of God right now. Jesus brings in God's kingdom, but it's not quite fulfilled. It's still the, the now, but not, the, but not yet. There's still a part of that kingdom to come where we see his reign and his rule and where there is no one in rebellion. All rebellion has been uh, brought to nothing. There will come a day when God will no longer put up with the vanity and the foolish notions of a defiant people. God is patient, of course, and he's long-suffering. But the day will arrive when, when rebellion will not be tolerated any longer. All people and nations living in rebellion to God's anointed, that is to Jesus, will be dashed to pieces, the psalmist says. Well, when will that happen? When will that happen? At the second coming of Christ. John, in the book of Revelations, looks back to Psalm 2, and he says, From his mouth, from Jesus' mouth, comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. The day is coming, brothers and sisters, when all rebellion to King Jesus will be put down, will be made nothing. And if this is God's plan and decree, then how are we to respond to God's anointed? Verses 10 to 12 give us our response. The first, this final stanza of the psalm tells us that to be wise, to be, to be instructed by serving the Lord with fear and trembling, trembling because of his majesty, trembling because of his glory, trembling because of his greatness. You want to be wise? Then kneel before King Jesus. That's what the psalmist is getting at here. We're told to kiss the son, that is to pay homage to him and submit to him lest he be angry and we perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled, the psalmist says. As Christians, we don't typically talk about Jesus this way. And yet God's wrath, God's holiness, God's judgment are just as biblical as his love, as his grace, and as his justice. The psalm ends in hope with a plea to kiss the son, that is to submit to his rule and take refuge under the arms of God's anointed. This is the gospel basically in a nutshell. How can the rebellious be saved from the coming judgment of God? By taking refuge in the cross of Jesus. Jesus has taken your judgment. He has borne it upon himself. So come to him with praise and thanksgiving and be counted among the truly wise. One commentator has said that Jesus first came as a lamb, but he will come again as a lion. But if we honor him, we believe in him, we trust in his work, submit our lives to him, he will rescue us with his lamb-like sacrifice. And one day, 
rescue us with his lion-like power. The psalm closed with, blessed are all who take refuge in him. To be wise, church, is to submit to our king and to follow his ways and decrees, even when they chafe at our sensibilities. We must learn to run to the cross and throw ourselves upon God's mercy. We must kiss the Son, for there is no salvation, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. One day Christ will return and cast out all the brokenness and sorrow that troubles us today. There will no longer be any hunger, prejudice, sin, or even death. All who in faith have trusted Christ will flourish under the splendid reign of King Jesus in his eternal kingdom. Christ is coming. Will you bow your knee before his authority today? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you decreed that the eternal Son of God would be born into the human race as the perfect Son of Man. Thank you that he took the punishment for our sins so that by faith in him, we also might be adopted into your family and become sons and daughters of the living God. Thank you that the day is coming when all nations and people will bow in praise and honor to King Jesus. And may we be the first to bend our knee to our most wonderful Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.